Well, good morning. John chapter 10. That's where you can be opening back to. We'll be beginning in verse 30 here in just a moment. We, we stopped last week in our study of this gospel at quite a cliffhanger. I, I do this, I have good intentions. Uh, they're not always appreciated. I do this at home when we're reading stories together. I try to work to stop on cliffhangers. I find it exciting. It dismays some of my audience when I do that. But that's what we did last week. There were literally stones in the hands of those surrounding Jesus last week. And the stones got into those hands principally because of the last thing that we heard Jesus say. He said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. It's just the latest in a string of self-identifying statements that Jesus has made in this gospel. And it's one of the ways he describes his very purpose of coming into this world. We'll hear him say in John 18, 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's come to bear witness to the truth. Not the truth in general, in a contentless way, but the truth about who God is. And when he comes and bears witness to the truth of who God is, he does not reveal the God of Islam. He does not reveal some false God, he reveals the true God. Which means Jesus reveals the triune God as he reveals God. There is no other God for him to reveal to us. And as we would expect then, given the nature of that, the friction often in his ministry comes in the places where Jesus makes statements about the unity that exists between himself and the Father. This morning, we're going to work from verse 30 down to probably about verse 38 or 39. Uh, And while there is more in this portion than just statements about Jesus' relationship to the Father, nonetheless, very little can be understood here without carefully considering the actual picture that Jesus is giving us here and has been giving us of himself. So all that to say, we're going to do three things this morning together. The first thing that we'll do is to step back for a few minutes and try to get a wide-angle view of the picture that John's gospel is giving to us of our triune God. And that will help us, I think, to do the last two things this morning, which will both involve hearing Jesus' reply in these verses to their accusation which we're about to hear them say, when they say to him, you are making yourself out to be God. This is what he's accused of this morning, and that's what he'll respond to. So let's begin by reading. I'd like to read verse 30 down to verse 42. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 10, starting in verse 30. I and the Father are one, the words of our Lord. 
the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A lot to do in this passage, can you tell? The first task for us this morning is to do some remembering and some looking ahead. We want to remember some of what we've already heard Jesus say uh, and listen ahead to the way he's going to continue to do what he's doing as he's revealing God to us. And I want to draw your attention to just three details for this point. First, remember, already by this time, Jesus has claimed the divine name to himself. And he's done it more than once. He's done it at, at a point in a way that was capable of being misunderstood. And, and it was misunderstood. I'm reminding us of what we saw in chapter 8 of John's gospel. He said in 8.24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. There's the divine name taken by Jesus, claimed for himself. But they didn't seek to stone him right that second because they misunderstood him. They assumed perhaps that there might be some other meaning behind his words there. But by the end of that chapter, the end of chapter 8, you remember that he clarifies what he meant there. The end of the chapter, we hear him say this, before Abraham was, I am. And he said at that time in a way that really could not be misunderstood. And it wasn't, because they picked up stones to stone him. So in revealing God to us, one thing to remember is that Jesus has already revealed the divine name of God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, and has claimed it as his name. Another detail, Jesus has claimed and has performed works that God does in the Old Testament and that only God can do. You remember the places where he has done this? You remember John 6, we saw Jesus literally tread upon the waves of the sea when the Old Testament told the Jews that God is the one who treads upon the waves of the sea. Over and over again, we find him saying and doing things that have been ascribed to God and really many of them that can only be explained as actions of God. Over and over, the scriptures told God's people about God's rescue 
uh, the salvation that he was going to bring to his people, giving bread uh, for life, giving water, bringing miraculous healings that the world had never seen before. And Jesus has said, me, 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 throughout this gospel. He's performed and pointed to works that only God can have ascribed to him. Another detail that we've seen is that Jesus, we've heard him describe a union with God. And this is getting into what we're hearing him say in our text this morning. He has spoken in terms of having a union with God that goes way beyond what any creature would be able to say. One of the ways he's done that in particular has been with his use of a unique father-son relationship, particularly in terms of the work that the father does and that he is doing. As he speaks of working with the father, doing the father's works, he speaks of a relationship that for his hearers was unmistakable as a claim of equality. Remember, the first time that we hear them recognize a claim to equality with God was in John 5, 18. And it's a response to what he said in verse 17, which was, my father is working until now and I am working. And what we noticed back then is that what Jesus is doing is he is speaking of an an actual father-son relationship. There were small places in the Old Testament where especially Israel as a nation could dare to speak of God as father to them. But they would never have spoken in this kind of a personal, direct father-son relationship kind of way. And Jesus does. He's depicting the kind of situation that was, was absolutely prevalent in their society, which is this is how a child, a boy, grows up to do his work. He works alongside his father. He does the works of his father. He's told what to do by his father. He's able to do what he's told to do. He's able to do what he sees his father do. He does it with the authority of his father. All of that picture implies a reality of equality that can exist between them. And his hearers understood that right away. And they objected. You're claiming, by by speaking of your work and the Father's work like this, you're claiming to be equal to God. He's done it again now with an unprecedented statement of union when he said last week, I and the Father are one. And what I want us to look ahead to is that he's going to go even further in John 14. Would you turn ahead for just a moment to John 14 and find verse 8. It begins with Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Does that sound familiar to what we just read in our text this morning? Now, the goal of of this first big point this morning is simply to remember that Jesus is very overtly revealing God to exist 
in Trinity as he teaches in his earthly ministry, as he, to borrow the language of John 18, bears witness to the truth. He is overtly speaking and teaching God, revealing God in terms of the existence of these interpersonal relations. That's what he does again in verse 30 of our text when he says, I and the Father are one. Now what I want us to do is to pick up the narrative there and let verses 31 to 33 lead us into the other two areas of focus that we'll explore in our time this morning. Can you come back to chapter 10, verse 31? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I absolutely love the question that Jesus asks them there as they're looking for the right size and shape of stone to gather. I love the control that you hear in his voice as he just calmly asks them this question. I mean, essentially, a a sarcastic question, almost. I'm confused. I've shown you many good works from the Father. So could you clarify for me, please? Which one of them was it again that you're going to stone me for here? And it's, it's the present tense. Which one of them are you stoning me for? Again, just so I'm clear. And his question succeeds. It, they, they pause in order to clarify, don't they? They don't want to be misrepresented. And, and they clarify that his works are not a factor at all in their decision to stone him. And it's interesting that they, even here, don't deny that his works have been good. That's a word that speaks to nobility, to praiseworthiness. They know what he has done, and they know that what he has done are works of goodness. Instead, they clarify that they feel the need to stone him because of blasphemy. The charge is in verse 33. You, being a man, make yourself God. That's what he replies to now. His reply starts in verse 34, and it has two components to it. These are the last two areas that we'll spend our time this morning looking into. They are not easy. It's very good that the Lord gives us time like this together this morning to walk through passages like these. This is a kindness of the Lord to his people. We need to notice as we begin, here's one thing I hope you notice right away, and that is, do you notice that Jesus does not deny their accusation? You being a man, make yourself out to be God. If someone accused you this morning of making yourself out to be God, I would hope and and expect that you could and would very easily clear up that confusion. There would be some simple things you could say to clear that one right up. It's like when John, the John who wrote this, starts in Revelation 22 to bow down to the angel that is revealing these things to him because he is so blown away. It's the same word as what the blind man just did to Jesus, by the way, at the end of John 9, bows down for worship. John does that, and that angel clears that up very quickly. He stops him 
And he says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant alongside of you. Don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus didn't stop the blind man from bowing down to him in chapter 9. And he doesn't deny the charge here when they give it. Instead, he does two things. One thing he does, the first thing we see him do, is he questions the scriptural basis for their charge of blasphemy. He challenges the key premise in their argument. The scriptural charge of blasphemy. Look at verse 34, verses 34 to 36. This is the first thing Jesus does in answering them, and it's very interesting. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He's directly quoting here exactly from Psalm 82. And very likely, the point that he's intending to make, and they they do this often, we see it in many places in the New Testament, someone will quote the Old Testament, a very small piece, and it's clear in what they proceed to say, that they didn't do that just to bring to mind that exact statement, but to bring to mind the context that that statement is in. It seems clear that that's what he's doing here. And what that means is, that Jesus' point he's making here is probably going to depend a great deal on what the point of Psalm 82 was. And that creates for us kind of a large difficulty. Because in going to Psalm 82, it drops us right into the middle of a big interpretive debate there in Psalm 82. Turn over there. Let's, let's look at this a little bit. We'll start in verse 1. Here, here's the question. Is Psalm 82 talking about heavenly beings or human beings? The question comes up because of verse 1, and what you decide to think is going to determine a lot of what you think is happening in the rest of this psalm, what Jesus quotes is verse 6 of that psalm, Psalm 82. You can see it down there. But look at verse 1. I'll read from the ESV, and it translates this very well. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, the word there for divine council, the word there for gods, is the common Old Testament word for God and divine, Elohim. So the ESV is putting it that way, taking this to be a description of God addressing a group of heavenly beings and proceeding to hold them under judgment. You can see what comes next. The problem is that that's not the only way that those words have been taken. Some will argue, and they may be right, that the Old Testament will use that word, God, Elohim, to refer to humans who have been, to whom have been delegated high authority on earth. So if, if you think that's what he's doing, then what he's doing is he's condemning the rulers, the judges of the nation of Israel. So the New American Standard translates it very differently. If you have an NASB, it'll say this, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Two different ways to go. The choice that you make 
could result in one of two different points for Jesus to be making in our text. Do you see the potential problem? I want to explain that quickly, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I don't think this is a tremendous problem for us because either way this goes, the point Jesus making really is the same. But I think it's good to explain this a little bit. If Psalm 82 is addressing humans in verse 1, then Jesus' point would be to basically be saying, look, in Psalm 82, 6, God is willing to use the word gods in reference to human beings with authority from God. So how can you accuse me of blaspheming because I claim to be the son of God? And if you look down in verse 6 and then verse 7, it, it speaks of, I said you are gods, and then it's, it's, it names them as the sons of God there. In other words, this would almost seem like something of a disingenuous argument. I mean, Jesus is clearly not claiming to be simply a man who has been given authority, but rather that what he's doing here then, in that case, is he's using this argument to poke a big technicality hole in their own argument. He's creating hesitation on the part of these guys who have stones in their hands. And he's saying, are you sure you really even understand your own scriptures and the way that God uses these titles and grants this authority? If Psalm 82 is addressing heavenly beings, then Jesus' point might be a little different. He might be saying, look, God made clear in Psalm 82 that there have been heavenly beings to whom God granted authority and called sons of the Most High in verse 6. The, the, the place I am claiming to have come from the Father, to have come from above from the Father, I'm claiming to be one who existed at that time in this heavenly council. Now again, even in that interpretation, it winds up being almost the same thing, because just as Jesus is clearly not claiming to be just a man with some authority, um, he's also not claiming to be a mere heavenly being among others who is in that sense called one of the sons of God. He is claiming a unique son relationship to the Father. So I think, that's all we'll say about that, I think we might be able to circumvent that Psalm 82 debate by simply noticing that Jesus is giving them a reason to doubt their whole understanding about the way divine authority works. They think that he has made a claim that he has no right to or authority to. And his appeal to Psalm 82 is challenging their very understanding of the ways of the Father in terms of how he might grant or bestow authority. Now notice too, as we've said, that while they have accused him of making himself God, and his Psalm 82 appeal does point out some sort of distinction. He, verse 6 said, I said, you are gods. There's an I, you, subject, object there. So him appealing to Psalm 82 does speak of a distinction between himself and the Father, doesn't it? It's important that we notice that it does that. Jesus is maintaining a personal distinction with the Father. Just like we saw in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, speaking of God as the Father, it, made, it went out of its way to, to proclaim that the word he's speaking of is not identical to the Father in person. However, Jesus' reply here also does not deny the charge they've given of a special kind of unity with the Father. And again, this is John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the Word was God. And we had a lot to say. That was quite a long time ago, John 1.1, wasn't it? But it's amazing the way that John holds up to us from the very beginning of his gospel, the existence of both unity and diversity in the Godhead. So the Psalm 82 reference suggests to Jesus' hearers that there might indeed be a way for one to claim God's very authority while also not claiming to be the Father. Now, does that clear all of that up just as clear as can be? Probably not. Let's add in the third thing that Jesus is doing here. I think this does go much farther in clearing up even the argument Jesus is making here. So hold on to what we've said and add to it now. Okay? Now we turn to the third object of our attention, which is verses 37 and 38. Because what Jesus now does is he says things that insist on and even explain the nature of his oneness with the Father. Remember, what we're finding is that Jesus reveals the triune God as he reveals God. There is no other God to reveal. So we would expect him as he teaches to come into some statements and claims that we must chew on a little bit and that will have mystery in them. Let's add into this verse 37 and verse 38. Jesus says this, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We could come at this with a question. What is Jesus claiming of himself? We have to remember, he is interacting with monotheistic Jews. In claiming a union with God to a group of monotheistic Jews, what might that sound like? Is he claiming to be the Heavenly Father? He's not. What about what we've already read from him in John 14? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Is he claiming to be the Father? He is not. What he's doing in his revelation of the one true God is he ex he's explaining the nature of and the existence of personal relationships within this one true God. He is revealing that there are, here's a big word that we've used historically, eternal Trinitarian relations. This is what he's revealing to us. What does verse 38 say that he wants them to understand? He puts it this way. So that you may know and understand, quote, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's what Jesus is working to reveal to them. It's a statement that the church has confessed as mutual indwelling. The persons of the Trinity mutually co-inhere in one another. Now, can you tell, if we wanted to, we could do a deep dive on this this morning? We are not going to do that. And this is far from the end of what Jesus is going to teach us about the Trinity as we go through John. So what we seek to do this morning is to, in the pool that is uh, our understanding of our God, and it is very much a pool like the pools I grew up going to that so kindly start with a baby area and slowly have a, have a decline, they don't just go off. It's not a one big deep end. 
in that pool of our understanding of our God, he is leading us here in studying this portion of his word to walk a little bit deeper into that pool. And so we'll do that. And in other times later in John, we'll do that again on this same topic. I'm thankful that we get to step deeper together and we don't have to try to step deeper by ourselves. What I want us to have in mind clearly this morning is that something that we said last week explains why Jesus, as the one who has been sent to bring us to God and to bring God's rescue to us, why Jesus, in bearing witness to the truth, must reveal the triune God in his doing so. What we said last week is that his coming has made one thing very clear. If sinful men and women are going to have any hope at all, it's going to require nothing less than God himself coming to rescue us. But when he does that, when God moves in time to act outside of himself, those actions are reflections of the life of God inside himself. So, for example, the Son is the Son and not the Father. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. He is, it's been called, the exegesis of the Father. John 1.18, what we just read before we began. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known to us. He has explained him to us. He has exegeted him to us. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, so that when the true God goes on mission, it comes to us in the form of the Father sending the Son to present and reveal God. This speaks to the very nature of the relations between the persons. The Son does not send the Father anywhere. The Father sends the Son. The Father is never said to obey the Son. The Son obeys the Father. These are descriptions of the nature of the relations within the Godhead. And they play themselves out in time and space as God chooses to act. He steps towards sinners to save. What does it look like? Here comes the Son from the Father to rescue. We could maybe say it another way as well, thinking historically. God's people could know and trust God as non-confessing Trinitarians when redemption was just a thing promised. But because redemption required a coming of God himself, which means the divine son entering the scene, when redemption is accomplished, his people could not thereafter remain non-consciously Trinitarian because we cannot make sense of, trust in, Jesus Christ's work without appreciating his divine nature. To save us, God must make confessing Trinitarians out of us because this is exactly what he is showing us as he comes to rescue. So we will look as the people of God, we will look upon our Savior like Thomas did in John 20 and we will say, my Lord and my God. This will be the result of God's work in redemption through his Son. It is a revelation of God. Now, I want to suggest to you, if you're finding much of this Trinitarian talk and description difficult, 
I want to suggest to you that what we find in verses 37 and 38 is a statement of sympathy from our Lord. Look again at what he says there. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I think this is incredibly helpful and kind of our Lord and what he says here. Because essentially what he's doing is he's coaching us as to how on earth we're going to, how are we going to get there? You're revealing a great mystery to us in revealing the interpersonal relations of, of the triune God. How are, we, how, how are we supposed to proceed in this? And Jesus is very kindly, sympathetically coaching us as to how this is to happen. How did the church come to recognize and confess the Trinity, the triune God? Well, we searched the testimony of the scriptures that God has given. We took it all in. We took in not just the clear statements of Jesus' divinity. We took those in. About five places in John 1, John 8, 58, Colossians 1, 15, 2 Peter 1, 1, Titus 2, 13, Revelation 1, 8, Revelation 22, 13, on and on and on. We took those in, but we also took in the picture of Jesus Christ, his words, his deeds, and we said, what must this mean? What did he claim about himself? What is the necessary conclusion from his person and his work? When Jesus says in verse 38, if I do the works of the Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, he's not saying believe my works instead of my words. He's saying Look at what you have been shown very kindly. The works are going to lead you, if you will let them. They're going to lead you to an inescapable conclusion. Leon Morris said something to this effect very well. He said, Jesus is looking for them to have a moment of insight and then to remain permanently in the knowledge that that moment has brought them. The knowledge to which a right perception of the works would bring them is that of the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. Such works as he had done could not be done by a mere man acting of himself. And I would add to that as well. We could consider, for example, things like the glory that those works brought to Jesus. We read in John 1.14, we beheld of this Son, this Word incarnate, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Incredible, powerful, divine language there. As John says, we beheld the glory of the Word made flesh. We remember that God who swears in his Word never to share his glory with another is said to glorify Jesus in 7.18 and 11.4 of this gospel. And it's a glory that Jesus claims to have shared with the Father before the world existed. John 17 we take these things in. Do you remember how Jesus is described in Colossians 2.9? Paul writes there this. He says, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nowhere that the Son goes that the fullness of God is not 
going and being revealed on display. The Father indwells the Son. Such is the unity there that those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. And what about the Spirit? Jesus is going to foreshadow his sending of the Spirit by himself breathing on his disciples in John 20. The Holy Spirit will be called the Spirit of Jesus Christ in places like Philippians 1.19. And we'll read in Acts 16.7 this fascinating statement. They were trying to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The Spirit will be sent by Jesus, as we're told again and again. But we're also told that he is sent by the Father, John 14, 26. And then this mutual sending will be spoken of, almost interchangeably, in John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Proceeds from the Father. But how does he foreshadow the coming of the Spirit? By personally himself breathing on his disciples. This is the unity. This is the dance that we see between the persons of the one triune God. And this is the picture that Jesus is revealing to us as he reveals and leads us to God. Let me read again Colossians 2.9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. My friends, this is Jesus Christ. The one who came from heaven to earth, the one who walked the earth, the one who dealt so kindly and gently and was so unable to be deterred in his pursuit of the cross for our sake, this is your Savior. And in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's one strong application of that reality. I think it's behind a question that Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He asked the Corinthians there, Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? I mean, do you sense the weight of such statements? And are they not all the weightier for having heard Jesus articulate these things about who he in fact is? What I hope that we take from what we've seen in Christ Jesus, our Lord, this morning, here's one thing. Isn't it obvious that the Bible is inviting us to drink deeply from the well of his truth? He has not revealed all things to us. He has not exposed all and explained all mysteries to us. What he has revealed to us is a deep, deep well of truth. And he invites us to drink. If we move through our lives, and as Christians, through our Christian walk, with a sure and steady, shallow view and understanding of who God is, it is not because the scriptures have failed to teach us. It's because we have failed to receive them. We're too busy. Really? But it's when we've come to recognize the scriptures for the absolute cannonball, I mean the glimpse into the very things of God that the scriptures are, 
that the scriptures become something that we have a hunger for. As we perceive, this is a deep, deep well of God's revelation to us of truth and a well that we have access to. And that we're called to pursue him through. I'd suggest one other meaningful application of the truths that we're starting to see here as Christ reveals them to us. And that is that the deep communion that's described here between the Father and the Son becomes our Lord's very prayer for us as well. In John 17, he prays this, I do not ask for these only, that's his followers, his disciples there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This last direct application I'm referring to is on the table in front of you here. The Lord's Supper that we share together as one body. Paul calls it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a participation, that's where we get the word communion, a participation in the blood and body of Christ. The communion table reflects and displays our unity together as his body. And not just that, but also our real table fellowship with God himself. With the Father who, by our adoption, has become our Father. With Christ, who has become our elder brother. And with the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from them both and has come to actually dwell in us, his people, to take up residence as a down payment of our inheritance. My friends, the communion that we display at his table every month when we share in this together is a display of an eternal communion. And isn't it something to be able to stand here and say that? I mean, think of what that means. We're, we're saying that while living and breathing in a world where nothing will last, this very morning we participate in and celebrate our participation in relationships that because of Christ Jesus are going to last forever. This is what our God and Father brings to our mind. This is what we celebrate together as we share at the Lord's table.